Hello, welcome to Job Fair Podcast. Today you're with Cody Meeks and we have a special guest today. Uh, he is a renowned chef and we'll get to him in a little bit. So my biography that I've learned about him from doing a little bit of research, his name is Wolfgang Green, originally from Germany. Uh, and he migrated first to Jamaica and started working in the resorts. And then he made his way into Tennessee and Texas, working at some renowned restaurants along the way that we'll get into a little bit more later. And now he's settled down, I believe, <laughs> in uh, Highlands, North Carolina, and he runs his own restaurant with his wife, Wolfgang's Restaurant and Wine Bistro. Um, to give you a little background, I know the place because me and my wife went there on our honeymoon, and we really enjoyed the food. Uh, just so you know, I think I had the rouladen with uh, spetze, and then my wife had the salmon, and we both enjoyed our meals very much. <laughs> Wonderful. So I'll let him give you any uh, extra biography he would like to outside of that. Well, um, I was born and raised in Germany. I was one of the in East Germany. And uh, I started my trade or I got, did my apprenticeship in, uh, in Germany for three years, which is in general the common denominator for all trades in, in Europe or in Germany, at least. Um, at that time, when I did my apprenticeship, you know, the factions between East and West were getting to the point where uh, one of the reasons why I decided to go into uh, uh, cooking was because I wanted to go out and see the world. Um, so uh, I got out of East Germany six days before the wall went up. And I was lucky that I got out, otherwise I obviously wouldn't be here today. And um, um, I went to refugee camp and I went to Hamburg uh, to some contacts I made before. And uh, at that time, uh, it was a big uh, thing about people going on on the ships, chefs going on ships. Of course, now there are a lot more cruises. It's a complete different animal. But <laughs> I applied, and um, there were too many people. At that time, it was basically freighters that go around the world with about 12 passengers. And uh, But I thought it was a nice way to do, go and see the world. Anyway, that didn't work out. So... Uh, I put an ad in the German uh, paper, hotel, restaurant, magazine, and I got a letter about four weeks later from Sheridan in Boston, which was the headquarters, that saying that they were opening a hotel in Jamaica and um, they would want me to come there. So I wrote back and said, "Well, that's all fine and good, but I don't speak Ger I don't speak English." So uh, anyway. They said, well, the chef there is German, so that should be no problem. Uh, going through all the immigration process, which at that time was a lot more, I guess, a lot more difficult than it is now. So I finally got there, and when I got there, the chef said, well, you got to learn English, so I'm not going to talk to you in German. Well, I was left on my own, and um, pretty much uh, it took me about three months to catch on. And of course, you're talking in Jamaica, you're speaking about the English, Queen's English and the dialect, which is Patois. So anyway, I was lucky to learn both of them. Uh, it took me about three months to find my way around. Of course, 
you know, when you're cooking, it's in, in a way, it's everything is international. It's, it's, you don't have to talk too much, but you still have to communicate, you know, uh, just like in a, any, any other job. So uh, I was there for working in the pantry and working by the line. At that time, it was a 250-room hotel, which was just built. And I was there for, I had a contract for two years. And when the contract was up, I went back to Germany. And I guess I was used to a little bit different life. When I got back to Germany, I said, yeah, I'm not too sure if that is uh, what I want to do in the future. So uh, I worked back in Germany for two jobs for about two years, for about six months. And then I got contact with um, a job uh, interview in London where they were looking for a sous chef in a private country club in Bermuda. So long story short, I ended up in Bermuda and uh, was there for, I think, somewhere around two years. And then at that time, um, Playboy was really big. So uh, I had a contact where they said they needed somebody in the Playboy club in Jamaica, which was pretty much at that time in Ocherius, one of the largest resort hotels. So I went there for about three months and I found out that the chef at the Sheridan was leaving. And I mean, I wasn't too sure whether I had a chance to get that job because I wasn't exactly of age for that position. But I applied and I got a job. So at that time, then went back to Sheridan and I was the youngest chef in the largest hotel in the island. I was there for about five years, then uh, moved to a hotel in Montego Bay for two years. And life in Jamaica was great, but it has changed a lot from the time I was there the first time to when I got back. And I, I, to make a long story short, I used to say, or I said that, the problems outweighed the pleasures. It was hard getting produce, uh, a lot of restrictions in, in that regards, uh, although tourism is one of their biggest uh, incomes for the, for the government or for, for the country. Anyway, I was transferred to Tennessee, which worked out, worked out great. Uh, the only problem really was when you come from a place where it's you pretty much party, can party all night to Memphis, Tennessee, where 11 o'clock you get thrown out of, out of, the, <laughs> out of the bar. But I got married in the meantime. Uh, our first, my first daughter was born in Memphis, uh, I think one week before Elvis died. And we saw his room, aluminum foil on, on the windows. Uh, but I did see him before that, uh, driving around his bicycles with his friends. i never forget <laughs> that. And then an opportunity came up to go to Baton Rouge and uh, through Baton Rouge, I got contact to Ella Brennan, Commander's Palace. And she told me, asked me to work for her, which then um, I was there for a little bit at Commander's Palace. And she said, I want you to go to Dallas. They had uh, several restaurants outside of town, Brennan's did, and uh, one in Dallas and one in Houston at that time. So that's how I ended up in Dallas. And I was there for quite a few years. And I felt that I saw... Dallas called from, a, from a basically a steak and potato town, a real nice restaurant town. Uh, you know, a lot of chains are there uh, trying out new things. Uh, so it was pretty exciting. And let's see. And then I got out of the kitchen, got into food and beverage management. I worked at a private club downtown. And then they put me in food and beverage in charge of several um, several restaurants out in Las Colinas, which at that time is between Dallas and Fort Worth, uh, or between Dallas and the airport, really. 
Uh, and it was a really brand new, great development. I mean, it was unbelievable uh, office combination with uh, office and living space, uh, country clubs. Uh, the Four Seasons is still there. They have one of the big golf tournaments there every year. I don't remember the name of it right now, but so anyway, so uh, from there, then uh, I went uh, back to Sheridan House Food and Beverage Track. That hotel just has opened up, well, it was open for about two years. And so I was there, which was the 500 room hotel, which uh, a lot of big volume. Um, I got to be uh, Sheridan's corporate or food, food and beverage director for the year for the North American division. And then I just felt I needed to take a break from the business after about two years. And so I met my wife to be Mindy and she uh, took me to, we did some traveling. I did some traveling work with her for about six months and she wanted me to come to see Helen, Georgia, the <laughs> Oktoberfest. So of course, at that time, everything was booked out. We got a room not too far from there. Weather was just about like this is out there today, cloudy and overcast and rainy. So I said, all right, let's go look at some land. We looked at some land. And by the time we left, had a contract there for 30 acres. <laughs> and I went to the Culinary Olympics in Frankfurt as part of the uh, Texas team. And well, backtracking possibly where it comes into getting into the business, I was also the apprenticeship chairman for the state of Texas for about three years. So I traveled from, uh, yeah, I mean, it was not my full-time job, but I did spend some time in Houston and so, uh, San Antonio. And I was very familiar with, with the ACF, American Culinary Federation, what what they're doing, what uh, how to get into uh, into this business. And um, we, I guess we can talk about that later. I know you have some questions on that. Uh, to get back to my career, um, uh, we got, uh, okay, so I got back from Germany. And at that time, we were not married. And she said, guess what? The contract went through. And we got married in December. And then so we lived up here for a little bit. And uh, then I got back into business. We moved to Lake Arrowhead, California, Hawaii, as food and beverage director. And from there, uh, I saw uh, an ad in the LA paper. It says, uh, looking for food and beverage on cruise line uh, with a uh, strong kitchen background. So I said, well, I did not tell my wife anything about that at that time. <laughs> <laughs> because I know she she said, we're, we're just moved. I mean, I was there for a year, but uh, so anyway, to make a long story short, I, I flew to, they flew me to Hawaii. I, at that time, that was American Hawaii cruises. They operated two large cruise ships, the Independence and the Constitution carrying about 2,000 passengers each on, on weekly trips around the island. So anyway, so I got that um, signing contract for a year, and then I was there for about, I think, a year and a half, and went back to Dallas. And uh, at that time in 94, with the economy, recession and stuff, Dallas was not, didn't look too pretty in me anymore as it used to in the booming times, of course. Thank God that has changed. So, I mean, to me, if I'm in the, in the business, to me, it's always has been my goal to see if I can find a restaurant for myself where, that I can own and run. And so uh, we came up here in uh, 4th of July in 94 um, to Highlands and we found this restaurant um, 
through a friend of mine, he said, go in there. It's a German restaurant, they want to sell it. We looked at some other places, but uh, financially it was just not possible. Uh, so um, we uh, went there, saw the place. Uh, it was about the second oldest house in, in Highlands, but they were running ready to sell and they worked with us on the financing. I mean, if you're trying to get in the business, unless you have some heavy financial backing, uh, going into business the first time, you can put everything together, what you need, business plan, etc. The bank will not give you any money. I mean, at least, uh, I would say, like I said, if you have some financial backers, but if you're on your own trying to get money, it's just, you know, we couldn't get anything. And then about six years later, finally, everybody wanted to give me money. But, you know, it's, <laughs> it's that old catch-22. And so... Anyway, that was 4th of July. We moved up here uh, September 15th. We uh, took over the restaurant. We started doing uh, lunch and dinner. And uh, of course, even then at that time, it was really hard to find people, especially here where you have schools and all that stuff, but pretty much all the uh, high school kids, when they get through, they go out, get out of town. Mm -hmm. So uh, we resorted to having a great relationship with the uh, Johnson and Rails in Charleston. And we went down there quite often and recruited. Uh, problem with that was there usually, can, at that in the beginning, we could only get uh, externships for like three months. And I finally talked them into, I said, you know, give them at least, I got to have six months. So they went against their policies. And so I had some... Uh, kids for six months of course you know they're learning the trade and uh, there's pretty much so much you know you can do with them uh we also got contacts and got, got a proof trading site with the cia in new york we went to a couple of job fairs there but most of the kids up there they're staying in the new york area i got one and uh i never forget it you know we tried to tell them when we interview them that they you know come you come into a small town uh, we have, don't have movie theaters. We really don't have much life, nightlife. Uh, so if you like golf, hiking, tennis, swimming, etc., you're you're in good shape. If not, don't try. <laughs> so uh, that one guy that came from the CIA, um, he was there for about two weeks, and we had a big um, buffet outside on the lawn. And one of the customers says, um, uh, "How do you like it here?" And he replied, "I hate it." <laughs> well, he was back on the plane the next day, obviously. Um, you know, it's, I mean, if you don't like it in a place, then don't stay. Make a long story short, but we've been, uh, we did lunch and dinner for about five years. And then the stress on you uh, in this business is, is tremendous. You can't get up uh, for five, every morning at nine o'clock and go to bed at 12. Sooner or later, something will tell you that you have to slow down. Well, my wife told me we we're going to slow down. Otherwise, I wouldn't be around much longer. So I took her advice. Well, you know, you don't argue with your wife. <laughs> but it, it, was, it was definitely it was the right thing to do. And really what worked out to was that while we only did dinner, um, my business did not go down. And volume-wise, we did same to start off with or more than we did lunch and dinner combined. Plus, I had less labor cost. Which, which was good. And I feel that, especially where we are in a resort town, if people come by for and see you for lunch, although it's two different menus in a way, 
they say, oh, I'll be nifl on treasure. I go back for dinner. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be different in, in other places, but uh, that's what I feel. And, you know, I think one of the most important things in this business, now we've been here for 26 years, was uh, you got, we have a different kind of client and customers, a lot of country club people, uh, a lot of people uh, in their late, whatever it is. Uh, but that whole, whole thing has changed a lot over the years, and we have a lot of younger clientele, yuppies and uh, people from Atlanta coming up here. So, but whatever it is, I feel that uh, it has served me well that you can listen to your customers, uh, knowing what they want. Uh, you know, some chefs say, well, this is what I do, and that's what is on the menu, take it or leave it. You know, and I've seen places here uh, that have come and gone, many, many places. A couple of years back, it was the big thing, heads to tail, you use all the parts of the animal, which is wonderful. <laughs> but you got to have also people that will eat it. And mm-hmm. that didn't work. Uh, in a big town, it might. And I think you can more instill what you want people to eat because people have a lot more choice and there are a lot more people to draw from, a lot more clientele to draw from. So you have a better chance of survival there. So anyway... Um, you know, basically our sales been up every year. Uh, we went to, we got the White Spectator Award about oh, 20, 20 years ago. And uh, we started, when we came here, we started with about 30 wines on the wine list. At that time, the big thing was Glen Ellen Splits. That was the previous owner's big deal. Glen Ellen Splits, i never forget it. Uh, that name might not be that familiar anymore, but it's like, Kendall Jackson, and I mean, they've come a long way with wine, so I'm not trying to knock anybody, but um, uh, so when I took that Penel split off the, off the wine list, she was very upset. You can't do this. You can't do this. They worked with us, <laughs> with us for about a month, you know, to get our feet uh, on the ground. Anyway, to get back to the Wine Spectator, we got that for her, and I now have uh, 700, 800 wines on the wine list. Uh, we got the Best of Award Wine Spectator, uh, which is the second tier from the top. And it's one thing we wanted to do because at that time also we did not have any liquor liquor service in town. And then uh, A. Williams came in town, he bought an old hotel and uh, that is the old Edwards Inn. I don't know if that was here when you were here. Uh, they've been in about 10, 12 years and uh, they have definitely helped to change town quite a bit. I think at that time I felt Lee in about 10 years ago you know, we, from the old house, we got bigger. I put on a pavilion and then I did some outside seating deck, left side, right side deck. And I had space up front, but I didn't feel comfortable making another investment. And I felt we were at a sort of brink of being a t-shirt town, tourist-wise, and we're not, we're not going to a higher end town. So anyway, that changed. And so made a big investment and put a bistro on. So we do, basically, we have a bistro that opens at 4 o'clock and dining room opens at 5.30. So you can have small bites from, you know, basically all night. Uh, you know, and there's no uh, open seating. Well, right now, we with COVID, uh, we can do only 50%. And everything has to be a reservation. So we got to be able to control. And I'd be usually um, booked out, like, for three days in advance. I think that's pretty much it. Um, what I can think of, um, 
<laughs> really, it's the, I think one thing that has not changed is, uh, you know, finding people, finding staff. Uh, some of my staff did not come back. We were closed for about five weeks during COVID. And then so I was finally lucky to um, hire two people in the kitchen that were basically out of job. We've done well. We're still doing well. Uh, despite COVID, we are, as a matter of fact, this month is going the first month where we, our sales were going to, are going to be higher than last year with full operations. And it's just, you have to change your system a little bit to be able to serve more people with less, basically with less staff. And it has worked for us. Uh, right now, uh, I mean, we're busy every day. We'll, usually this time of the year, we're going into a slower season, but we have so many people up here that have been buying houses. The housing market has gone completely crazy. Very lucky, uh, of course, now you never know when the thing's gonna come back and bite you and you have to shut down because you gotta test everybody. I had it. It happened to me once. Uh, I had to shut down for a week. Uh, so, but that can come back again. But it's just something we have to deal with. The uh, PPNP has, I think, helped us at least. Uh, you know, people were say, well, but it has. It took care of the payroll, and it has helped. Has helped us to survive. Now, all those questions that you have. <laughs> I'm going to try and work my way uh, chronologically through your story and ask some questions, actually. So I wanted to ask you about the apprenticeship you had. First of all, was that in East Germany or West Germany, to be clear? Well, that was in East Germany, but it's pretty much the same in West Germany, that you go to, uh, you work in a hotel or in the kitchen uh, for four days, and then you go to school to do for two days. Okay, so it's kind of like a... It's like a cooking school, but all the, you know, those two things combined, and I think to me, that's the ideal situation where you get exposed to actual working online and producing things to the theoretical stuff that you need to know. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I was kind of curious what your take was on uh, like the apprenticeship you went through, which seems like it was a pretty 50-50 mix of hands-on experience versus in the classroom right. Right. versus what uh, what you see nowadays in the U.S. at least. I feel like it's more in the classroom learning, but I could be wrong. Well, Really what I can say, you know, I mean, you look at how many cooking schools, so to say, opened up in the last couple of years. You know, you have those kids, um, they see all those chefs on TV, they see all those cooking shows, and they see all the glory of it, and that's what I want to do. But um, it's not quite that way you got to learn. You got to learn the basics. You you, you got to be able to... Um, have the ideas have it in your brain to do things what, what those people do. And, you know, going to cooking shows, I mean, that's a complete different animal than uh, working in a restaurant every day. Uh, I had a person in the last week, I think, he does, uh, he and his wife do some of the shows and they came in second. And they basically, that's all they do is just go from one show to another and make, make good money, hmm. you know. And he did not have any basic training. Which I was, which I was surprised about, but obviously he has enough, gained enough knowledge to be able to do that. I think one of the, with being cooking and being as popular, or on TV, as it is, the people I had uh, from Johnson Wales, and I would say I had about twenty altogether. Not one of them stayed in business. Hmm. They all have great ideas of doing catering and. and Really, when it comes down to, I think the breaking point is that 
they don't realize what it takes to actually work behind the line and the hours that you have to work. Plus, uh, for many people, the breaking point also is that, uh, my God, they have to work weekends and holidays, <laughs> you know. Especially those. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I always looked at it that way. I said, you know, my God, I'm working on Sundays, but when I'm off on Tuesday, everybody else is working. You know, yeah, you can run your errands with uh, these. There's nobody else out. Nobody else is, you know. Uh, <laughs> so you really, uh, it's, it's something that you have to get used to. I mean, I, I that's, the, that's the way I grew up. I I worked, uh, you know, had to get up at 5.30, hit a train, go to work. Uh, or sometimes I came home at 10.30, 11 o'clock at night. So mm-hmm. day shift and night shift, uh, it, I think it all depends where you go to, what you do, what kind of position you have. You know, in larger hotels, it's more detailed. In smaller restaurants, it's where you have to do more things, you know, uh, be able to do a lot more things uh, that uh, we don't have the exclusivity. Like, you know, some of the big hotel uh, restaurants in New York, there's one person, name famous hotel uh, restaurants, he does that person just do, does one thing. Hmm. The chef is up there and he gets it all together. Uh, because they do high volume and uh, to be articulate and uh, you know that's, that's the way it is and I think that's great but you know uh, that's the way route you want to go and I've seen some people that went through some of those restaurants and come to me and it's, uh, it's a little bit different animal but I think what it really boils down to is in this business if you want to go and get somewhere or go somewhere you've got to Watch the chef or watch your co-workers. You know, I always say, you can come in here, you can go as far as you want to, or you just, you know, if you don't look around, you don't know what's going on, you're not going anywhere, you're not going to be here very long. You know, but that's what, and that's what I did. I mean, uh, everywhere I go and I'm looking back, you know, you learn things everywhere. Sometimes you wish you would remember some of the recipes <laughs> uh, if you didn't write them down. But I think it's really the ambition to be the best you can be, and uh, it's stressful. It's um, you know you do your preparation, and uh, one famous chef at CIA, Sutton Schmidt, said preparation is everything. It it really is. If you're not ready for dinner service or lunch service, whatever, it's a hard time trying to make it through it. You know, and you got to yeah. be organized. You got to be organized. And when I got a restaurant, one of my biggest biggest concerns if you have your own business was doing the ordering the ordering of food Uh, you know to get that feel for what you need what's out there and especially where we are um, you know in Atlanta which is the next big city uh, you know you can get everything you can get on a daily basis you know here you pretty much with all the disturbers you have to work ahead and you get two days delivery, some three days deliveries. In season, it's maybe four. Now, you start pulling back uh, where you only get one or two deliveries a week. You know, so it's it's a challenge to, to, to try to work that out. And, um, you know, I do all the ordering in my spare time. I mean, what I do I'll, while I'm working, I'll have my little list there and uh, see what we need. And then I put it together and see what which which company i'm ordering certain things from because you got to have your standards you got to have i mean one product that you always use um, um 
has to say has to be the same uh, same product and then sometimes the suppliers change product it happens i had a situation with wiener schnitzel which is one of my signature items and uh, where i'm buying it from they change the specifications and suddenly i got complaints it's tough blah 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 so i had to drop it and move to somebody else who had a compatible or better product and yeah the price was a little bit more but you know my reputation is is that's what i have to stand behind my products and i can't have anybody saying that it's tough or we can't eat it so that was about a week when i heard that i can't try everything every day you know it's it's, it's hard uh, mm -hmm. to keep up with everything but you know i try everything as much as i can and of course i rely on uh, customer feedback um I do spend, uh, when I get a chance, especially when service winding down, I make my rounds in the restaurant. Uh, mm -hmm. I see all the customers and say hi. And uh, and it's I think it's one of the satisfaction I get that the, the positive feedback uh, makes it worthwhile uh, being in this business. It's not easy, but uh, I think it's part of I'm There are not too many chefs that do it, but uh, I feel it's an important part of um, my, my business, my job, and especially if you're, you know, you own a restaurant and you want to know what your customers think, you know, sometimes you have to explain something or, you know, the steak wasn't cooked properly and, uh, yeah, you've got finicky people out there, but they pay good money for it and uh, you got to make it right. And especially these days with the social media being out there where anybody can just about post anything mm -hmm. on social media, it's, it's, uh, you really got to be, uh, on the ball and sometimes make probably maybe a little bit more allowances than you would normally do you know mm. somebody sends a steak back he said this is it's meat perfectly medium rare it's not medium rare it was a couple <laughs> of days ago and that was the last ticket that went out of the kitchen and i said you know what let's just do another steak send it out the same way and she was happy <laughs> you know but that same person uh will go on social media and 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 and, and tear you down and your ratings go down and uh like I said, it's a doggy doggy world out there. Yeah, you, know, uh, you know, I mean, it used to be uh, the old saying was, you know, if anything goes, somebody gets something, um, a restaurant does not well, you know, they'll share their information with like 10 or 15 people. And if they were happy, well, they were happy, but they don't talk to anybody about it. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like in uh, when you're in college, there's like this uh, Rate My Professor website. And you only see really good ratings or really bad ratings. You never see anything in the middle. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, you know, everybody looks at that. And uh, one of the parts where they make the decisions. And, I mean, we've been lucky or we've been working hard to be between number one and number two. And if you're, if you're number one, it's like catch 22. And it expects me <laughs> too much because, you know, so we're, we're happy between, being between number one and number two. <laughs> All right. So... What you mentioned there, you were talking about some of what I would consider uh, the behind the scenes, which is you're having to do all these analytics, thinking about what you need to order, uh, and you probably have to plan your menu around uh, common ingredients and everything so you can be more efficient. Yeah. Is that some of the, the basic skills that you think a lot of new chefs are having to learn up on really quick, or is that... Like, did you see that when you were working in the industry, or did you see that a lot more once you owned your own restaurant? Uh, well, I guess, you know, they're depending on the restaurant. To me, 
uh, to have a consistent product or people who come to your restaurant, they know, you know, and I have people come and they know exactly what they want. And sometimes I can't get them to change <laughs> until finally I get them to change. And they say, well, I should have stuck with what I had, uh, <laughs> you know, but as long as they're happy, uh, that's fine. Uh, there are some restaurants that not as a big a menu as we have, but they change it quite often their menu and uh, I think to me is uh, the feedback what I get is well when I get there I didn't I couldn't get what I had there the last time I think that's something that might work in a big town better than it was work is working here because people are I would say you know they're more set in their race although you know like I said we're getting a younger crowd and uh, people that have traveled a little bit more so we got to be innovative and uh, sort of go halfway to meet the, uh, you know, sometimes, I mean, it's just crazy stuff. Uh, I mean, a couple of years ago, I remember we go to those cycles. Everybody had mayo lemons on the menu. Everything was mayo lemons, lemon, mayo lemons everywhere, you know, and then, uh, what was it? Anyway, there are certain items somehow for, for you know, it's like this farm the table stuff. Well, it's great. But people advertise it, and number one, like up here, they advertise from the table in the render and nothing grows up here in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, but but that was the slogan. Everybody had that from the table. Well, it comes to some some form to your table. I mean, I go, I went out of the restaurant like in a couple of years back in, in spring. I mean, there was in the country, not far from us, but you know, from the table. And I said, sir, where do you get this from? Well, I eventually found out. They're getting in the same place where I'm getting it from, you know, which is a, a supplier. Uh, we have, we're lucky that we have a, uh, a fresh produce uh, company in town that uh, goes to Atlanta market basically every day. Drive down, and I did with them one time. They drive down like one o'clock in the morning, and they yeah. put all their orders together, put in their orders, and they pick up all the produce down there, and then they bring it back up here to the island. So you talk about a two and a half hour drive. To supply and uh, all the restaurants, that's about as close as it gets, uh, you know, from the table. And they're finally now saying that they're toning it down a little bit, that they also get it from local suppliers, which is the produce company that brings it from Atlanta. But, you know, you go through those periods where slogans, you know, it's like, I can't think of it right now, but I'll get back to it later, that that's a stick in your mind or that everybody uses. Um, for a while until they die again, you know, and it's, it's basically, it's the same thing what we have always done. It just suddenly there is this name out there. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, but so, um, like I said, in, in my position, uh, it has served me well to listen to my customers, you know, and they come, well, when are you going to have this on the menu? When are you going to have this on the menu? And so I can usually tell them I work ahead and then I said, you know, We'll, we'll, uh, we'll call you when we have it, or, you know, I do duck occasionally, which is the Commander's Palace style duck, and people go crazy about it, or, you know, uh, Vilosa Buko, they asked about it a couple of days ago, when are you going to have Vilosa Buko again? I said, we'll call you. But, uh, you know, that's really the challenge is to run, and then, of course, I pay all the bills also, and I think it's uh, a billing service, uh, where you number one, um, are very much aware of the prices, of course, you know, they tell you, or you can ask them how much, you know, get votes 
especially on high volume stuff like meats. You know, it's very important whether you pay 50 cents more or 50 cents less. Uh, mm-hmm. And your whole mix on the menu is that you have a good balance between stuff that costs you more and stuff that you have a better food cost. I mean, let's say right now I'm, I'm selling so much uh, red meat, fillets especially, um, and the prices have gone up. So I went up two bucks on uh, strips and tenders, and I did not see any resistance. Um, just keeps on going. Mm-hmm. You know, so you really, I mean, you got to make a living on it, and you got to pay your pay your staff well, and uh, and you also got to listen to your staff, uh, front of the house staff, what feedback you know they're getting from the customer i think it's also very important is the relationship between the front of the house service staff and the kitchen uh if they're not happy or if there's a friction there that usually comes down to the customer reflects you know people get uh, miserable and so that's it, it's a very important part and uh, we've been lucky that i've had good staff uh had most of my staff for quite some time i had one guy started with me at Mexican guy started with me 23 years ago, and he's sort of now my right hand man. He, he was a dishwasher, and I was going to put him on the pantry after a year or two. And he said, I'm not going to do it. I'm washing dishes, and that's it. Well, I talked <laughs> him into it, you know, and, and, and I think that's, um, you see a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, but, you know, they start basically on the bottom and work their way up. And coming to that in that aspect is there are some hotels, I know in Dallas, when I was in Dallas, there, a central college, and they had basically a program like what we did in Europe, where you work in a hotel for a couple of days and then you go to school or you go to school at night. You know, you work in the morning and you go to school at night. And I think that is something that has worked really well. I've seen a lot of people coming out of the program that really uh, had a solid, solid professional background and made it uh, in, in some good places. Uh, I've seen also, I've seen great chefs uh, that didn't make it because they had too many partners in the business and then sooner or later that went to pieces. Uh, that's why I wanted to be, I wanted to be in my own, I own the property and I own the restaurant so I can pretty much, in that aspect, uh, I'm one step ahead of uh, people that rent, lease, or have a lot of partners, and I've seen quite a few chefs that, my God, they got all the PR in the world, and great, great food, and great everything, but eventually, I mean, their numbers obviously didn't quite jive, and it came back to buy them, and, you know, if people put money in the restaurant and didn't see nothing coming out, something has to give sooner or later. Yeah. The very finicky business. So, could you take a moment to kind of compare and contrast like the role of a sous chef versus an executive chef? Well, I think that depends on the size of operation. Uh-huh. If you're looking at a large, large kitchen, I mean, let's say where I, where I apprenticed, we had over 40 people in the kitchen and we had executive chef and we had two sous chefs, and a pastry shop. So the executive chef at that point was just strictly in the office doing administrative stuff while the sous chefs were, were actually the ones that, that run the kitchen. Okay. Uh, the smaller you get in operations is where, you know, you can call that person executive chef, but it's really that person is on the line and working every day. 
So that uh, is a, it's a big from one end to the other end. There is a big big difference uh, money wise, of course. I mean, those big hotels there is big money, and you know restaurants that are smaller. You know, we try to pay what we can. Or I mean, I would say my my pay scale is 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 way above um, just about everybody else, and I think that's one of the reasons too that I'm able to keep keep my staff. You know, it's uh, I pay my dishwasher two or three dollars more an hour than the hotel across the street, and uh, I'm lucky I found somebody. I mean, it's just like uh, I did without a dishwasher for about three weeks, and uh, what's his name said uh, in Chicago, he said. Dishwashing builds character. Well, that's good. <laughs> you, after you worked there for a couple of weeks, uh, yeah, you got a lot of character. <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, you know, it's uh, if there's one wheel in the kitchen that does not uh, is has fallen up or is not there, it's uh, everybody has to jump in and and uh, make up for that, and that's uh, that's always a challenge. <laughs> You know, especially washing dishes, it's, it's a very important job uh, that you have clean pants. So, I mean, we do a lot of you know, that you have clean pants and pots and, and everything. And, you know, at least one person in the kitchen has to be certified by the health department. And we have health inspection every every quarter. For whatever reason, the last inspection we had, we scored the first time in 20-some years, scored 100. Perfect. Now... Oh. You must select us because I could have found a couple of things, but I'm not complaining. <laughs> now, I'm usually, you know, 96, 97. You know, they can always, that department, they can always find something if they want to find something. But I think it keeps everybody on their toes, uh, you know, and um, I've had some, heard some chefs, they argue with them. But, you know, it's it's for the good of the business that uh, they're out there and then it's an unannounced visit and you check on them, I think. Most states have it, some more, some less. And uh, But self-policing is, is the most important thing. You know, you got to make sure everything put away, everything has been dated on there, proper temperatures, whether it's hot or cold. That's all part of the game. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. you can't afford to have somebody get sick or uh, it's it's a lot of things to look at that needs to be taken care of. Okay. Now, could you walk me through like your day-to-day -day, uh, work as a director of food and beverages? Uh, you can pick any of your roles or kind of talk about them combined. Well, my right now as chef owner, uh, yeah. it's different than uh, I can go back to, well, let me go back to the Sheridan after this. But right now what I'm doing is... Uh, my wife, uh, usually I get whatever we get on emails and stuff in the morning and I'll look at that or hopefully good news from TripAdvisor. <laughs> if it's not good and somebody is in a miserable mood, you know, and we can answer it. We're not perfect, but, you know, sometimes you wish that uh, people give you a chance to correct something if something went wrong while they're there instead of them just walking out and put it out there in the world, you know. Hmm. Um, but so I'll do, that's what I get in the morning. I'll go to uh, what I need to do in the day. Uh, I put my orders together that I need to call in. And then I go to the restaurant for a couple of minutes. Uh, about, about, I leave for about an hour until I get back, check the restaurant, make sure everything is, is in order there. And then I come back. And uh, usually that's the time when I 
get my pencil out and start paying bills because you got to keep up with that. You know, because your credit rating uh, uh, is very important in this business. Uh, I worked one time at the, I won't mention name, but it was in Bad Rosian. There, did not pay their bills or, and then the problem was the chef's office was right there on the way to the accounting office. So everybody who wanted to get paid had to go to the chef's office to the accounting office. Uh, you know, so it's very important that um, you don't have time to, when you get delivery, they write a check or whatever. You've got to be able to have good credit to just peace of mind to be able to operate properly. You know, and I mean, I got anything between two weeks and four weeks, I have time to pay my bills, and uh, that certainly helps in running the business. So, take care of my bills and I line them up. That's a wonderful system that. Uh, I write the bills when I get them, and then I send them out six days before they're due. So I'm stuck off about that big of bills to pay, but I go to the post office when they're due, and then I pay it. So that's that's my system. It works for me. Hmm. And then I go to work. Um, I go to the post office first. That's my very exciting start of the day, see what's there, and then I go to work. Um, and uh, I have my schedule pretty much planned out. I know what staff needs to do. I know what I need to do. Uh, I still do some of the basic preparations, uh, like the lobster bisque, which is one of our signature soups. I still do that. And we go through a lot of that. Uh, but most of the other stuff, I just make sure that they're done right. I mean, onion soup we sell is probably our highest uh, amount uh, that we sell onion soup because people don't expect that we put a lot of onions in it. Just imagine that. Because sometimes you get onion soup and it's all it's water, and, you know, or stock. And so we really got a reputation on that. And uh, just make sure that everybody's in line and gets their stuff set up. I mean, my chef and my second, uh, you know, they're delegating and, and doing a lot of stuff. I mean, everybody is busy on the line getting getting set up for dinner. It's, it's the everyday preparation things. A lot of things have to be done every day. And we're pretty much, I mean, everything what we do is made to order. And sometimes people don't understand why does it take 20 minutes for a rack of lamb to come out? Well, we don't have it there. I mean, we have it there ready to go, you know, to be cooked, but it's not, it still has to go sauteed. People don't understand. And, and, and uh, they come in and they don't have any appetizers, any soups, and they just order their entrees. And they don't understand it might take a little bit because they're not exactly in front of the line. We don't we wait for the order, but we don't wait. You know, some orders are easier to put together uh, than others. Uh, the only thing I, I have pre-prepared is, and I do that quite often, is short rib. We have a big reputation on that with colored greens. And, of course, that is ready to go. We can get it out at the same time the order comes in. But if you have uh, parties of... 8, 10, 12, uh, everybody has something different to eat. You know, it takes a little while to get that thing together. And if you have four parties of that hanging on the board, it'd be served to be put at the same time. And that, you know, sometimes it works out and sometimes people have to wait a little bit, you know, because uh, like I said, there's nothing pre-prepared. We get an order. Uh, I mean, yeah, we pound the real couplets out and you know, that is all done but there's nothing else really cooked to order. I think I got the biggest compliment from a competitor. So this, at one time, he was in and he said, 
well, I guess Wolfgang's uh, food's coming out just like that. Uh, they must be pre-preparing everything. And I don't. I said, I'll take it as a compliment because I don't. You know, so you really, your kitchen has to be organized and able to handle sometimes, you know, 100 more people uh, in an hour and a half uh, when they decide to. And that's, that's one of the things that has changed a lot is, and there was a survey done, is that uh, cell phones. Uh, people tend to play with their phones and talk and talk, and then they're ready to order, and then suddenly everybody wants their food at the same time. It doesn't happen all the time, but uh, there was a survey done that usually, I mean, let's say if it takes people one and a half hour or one hour and 15 minutes from the time they get until they leave, it now takes like 20 minutes longer with the cell phones. So you cannot turn your tables. You got to keep that extra time in mind. I mean, of course, not everybody does it, but you'd be surprised when I go to a restaurant, how many people, I mean, even after that couple sit on the phone I don't know if they talk to each other but they got their cell phone now uh, <laughs> can't you just go out enjoy your dinner and just an hour and a half stay away from it mm -hmm. uh, I found that kids playing with it uh, you know uh, keeps them quiet keeps them around and keeps them focused uh, because that's one of the last things we want to have is you know kids running around but uh, why can't adults just put their phone down for it? hour and a half and just come in and enjoy enjoy the meal you know <laughs> i said <laughs> made a joke i said i'm going to put one of those red london telephone boxes outside i'm going to use the food <laughs> go out there and use it uh, so that's you know those are all signs of the times that um, you know you have to deal with it and um, make the best of it so everybody's happy that's all you really all you can do uh, so as your time working as the director with Sheraton, what did you do there? How was that different? Well, um, I would say it's uh, the way I worked. It. It's not while it is office hours, uh, you know, you can say it nine to five. Well, it's not. I usually I came in about seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning. Um, mm -hmm. Helped out. Uh, we had a big, uh, big restaurant downstairs uh, for breakfast. Uh, you know, help out there if I had to make sure everything went right there and then I went in the office and took care of everything that needed to be done there you know I mean if you you know and then you have in big corporations you have meetings and meetings and meetings sometimes they are obviously more productive and sometimes they're not that productive and there's nothing much you can do about it except that you have to be part of the team and win and bear it you know and that really depends on whoever is the general manager and I had some good guys and I had some people that there were in the army or was in the navy, and their meetings in the morning were at six thirty. So everybody had to be down at six thirty. Come on! But you know that's uh, you have to make do adjustments. Uh, and then usually I try to be there, Sheridan, and lunch uh, in the afternoon until well, usually meetings at three o'clock. And afterwards, I try to get out of the office for a little bit and do some running which I was pretty active at that time, which was nice. But then I went back to work and we had a very well-known restaurant upstairs on the rooftop. So I spent some time there and depending on what was going on. So I usually got home about 8, 30, 9 o'clock. So, you know, that was, that was my basically routine day there. When I was in Hawaii, 
I spent basically half the time in the office and the other half, half on ships where I uh, either, you know, spent a whole day or two on, uh, on one day on one ship, uh, you know, and it's just like the most important thing there while the menu is pretty much set is that uh, you know, we've had pictures of everything and people have to you know, have to comply. Everything is in one place, one place, one place. Which it should um, in every restaurant when you whatever you serve, everything has its place. But I think it was more more intricate there because uh, you know you serve two thousand passengers and you pretty much you got to do your forecast of uh, how many you serve of each dish and preparation wise. You know and you better be pretty close to that. So and that was um, pretty much. Uh, on the ship, it's pretty much uh, at least a twelve-hour day, mm-hmm. you know. So, which I think in this business, I would say that's about the average commitment what people need to make to uh, take care of things. I mean, it's not a nine-to-five job, and uh, you know, it's holidays and there are Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's Eve. Um, you know, and I think young people don't realize what. Uh, takes and I think they should if I would start all over again or if I would be in a position uh, right now to start get into this business I would probably recommend to somebody that if you want to work in the kitchen try to spend at least one month in the kitchen hopefully a well not small either way but you get some kind of a feel that this is what you want to do because I think that's when people get out of the rest of hotel schools, when it hits them that they have to work weekends and the hours are a lot different, and suddenly there come doubts in their mind, oh, well, I'm going to do catering. Well, catering is something that uh, they all want to get into, but you've got to build up a reputation first to get into catering, mm-hmm. to get the business. You know, it's, um, it's uh, if you don't have a reputation or if you don't have, have an established and business uh, plus if you just do catering you still have to have a kitchen to work out of that has that you basically have to pay for expense wise uh, every day whether you use it or whether you don't use it and then you're looking at staffing uh, you know yeah you might have some staff but then you need more people in the kitchen to prep and then you gotta you don't keep those servers on hand so you need to have good resources to have but on the house staff, so there are challenges everywhere. And it's not, I would say, especially catering business is a tough one, especially if you have to transport things. We don't do anything up here because the mountains, I wouldn't even touch it. I think since <laughs> I've been here, I think we did about two. And that was basically just because of people, good customers that we couldn't, basically couldn't say no, they spent a lot of money. And I said, okay, mm-hmm. but, you know, we, we worked the menu around that things that can be done or that are not us. And we did want to do a couple of charities, fundraisers. But that's a, it's a complete different animal. And uh, if I do that and have everybody uh, doing that out of house dinner, I have to shut the restaurant down. So anyway, that's it. Um, you got to be able to, you got to have a commitment to spend long hours. And, and especially when you get girlfriends, relationships, and not too many people are, whether it's a man or a woman, are, if they're in a different kind of business, are understanding what it takes to be in this business. You know? so 
I've been lucky. It's um, all those times I've married of three couples, three people from the kitchen to three people in front of the house. That works out well. <laughs> <laughs> it can work for you. Or it can work against you. But, you know, what, what you're going to say, no, you can't take that person. Uh, it's, uh, you know, some large companies have policies on that. But uh, we've been uh, lucky in that aspect that uh, it worked out. And they're still married. So we're good. So it seems like what drives people away from this career the most, you would probably say, is people uh, having mismatched expectations as to the hours and everything. Is there anything for you personally that uh, that you found irritating about the career? Like, say, maybe like uh, if you when you were working for other companies, did you have issues with like uh, a mismatch of personalities with the owners or poorly run kitchens or the clientele even? I had, I would say, very, very few. Um, okay. I had, <laughs> I remember one time when I came to Memphis, uh, the food and beverage director didn't know anything about food and beverage. <laughs> uh, but I was, I was the guy. So I said, I went to them, I said, you know what, either him or me. And they transferred him. But uh, in, that was, I think, really the only thing I could remember. Uh, you know, you got to work with everybody uh, as a team. Uh, when you deal with large corporations like Sheridan, you have a lot of, you know, corporate policies that you have to adhere to, which are there for a reason. And uh, I have always looked at, even when I worked there, is my decision was based on what would I do if that was my business? Mm-hmm. And I always fared well, except one time where I thought I had made the right decision, I was told the next day, no company's policy is different. But, <laughs> you know, I still felt good. I've still felt that I made the right decision. And I think where we are working for people, what you do in this business, think about what would you do if it is your business? And I think that's taken pride in what you do. That is the most important part to me, it has been. Is your director position, did you have control over what the menu was or is that set at the corporate level or? Well, at the food and marriage, at cruise ship, that's all corporate. That's, uh, okay. uh, I mean, you can add some final touches, but that's all pretty much uh, set in stone and it has to be because uh, it's like we got like a ship container ship every two weeks from the mainland in a way with basically all the produce and I'm looking back you know you think Hawaii and fresh produce and fish well there wasn't enough around to take care of uh, all those people Mm -hmm. on a consistent basis I mean I went to the Hilo fish market uh, just about every time we went there but we bought some fish which Sometimes we got enough to be able to use it for customers. Sometimes it's just enough to feed the staff. But there is no consistent supply of what you have to work at uh, taking care of, of that kind of business. In, uh, uh, let's say, on Sheridan, it was pretty much, you have to get it approved, basically, but you could put your menu together pretty much. Although, you know, there's some company standards, but you could put your menu together the day you want to. That there was there was enough leadway there, which then I guess is different when you work for like uh, TGI Fridays or whatever. I don't know how much <laughs> they have, but 
I haven't worked there, so I can't speak. And at Commander's Palace, were you able to kind of uh, construct some of your own meals to put on the menu as well? Uh, that was pretty much all set also. Uh, okay. Yeah, I did one time when I was uh, uh, in Dallas. I don't remember what it was, but I said, that plate just looks blah. So I put, <laughs> I put a tomato wedge on it. And that got back to Ella Brennan, and she said, no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, she was a great lady. Don't get me wrong. I respect her a lot. She's great, you know. And I certainly, I guess, that's company policy. You don't put a tomato on that plate if it's not supposed to be. <laughs> All right. So, um, and you mentioned at the beginning that you've always kind of wanted to own your own restaurant. But was there any, uh, I guess, particular thing that drove you to open your own restaurant at that particular time? Did you want more control on the on the menu, or did you just kind of want the pride of having your own restaurant? Or I think I think it's uh, to me as a chef, it was always my goal to eventually, sooner or later, hope that I own my own restaurant. I did okay. not want, like I said, I talked before. I did not want to have any partners. I wanted to completely fly on my own, and uh, I was very fortunate that this opportunity came along. And I mean, it all happened so quick, and. Uh, we sold our house in Dallas, and whatever the profits we made from that, we used to put that down as earnest money. And then, uh, you know, they worked with us on the financing, so we were really lucky to be able to get in that spot. Uh, I mean, we had to spend a lot of money afterwards, and the first couple of years were scary when you basically get down to nothing uh, for survival. Uh, but uh, we made it, and we got bigger and bigger and better. So, uh, by that, really, it, it, what comes back to you there is you know all the things that you learn in the business you've been able to apply that uh, for your own restaurant you know so yes it was always my goal i'm very lucky that it worked out as it did and i know a lot of people that was their own their goal and they never got the opportunity so i think it's important if you, if you do want to open your own restaurant i mean it sounds like you would advise working around take bits and pieces here and there to put into your own restaurant. Yeah, and you know, you, you can basically, uh, you know, whether you work for a large corporation, you know, or a small, there's always something that I look back and I said, you know, that has served me well, or that is something, I remember way back for Sheridan, they made a big contract with a big meat company in Chicago, I won't mention names. And then they sent, uh, when I was in Jamaica, they sent, substandard uh, beef down to the Caribbean. I don't know if they thought they'd get away with it, uh, but that was corporate policy. And well, I let my uh, corporate staff, co corporate food and beverage know about it. And uh, and then they're disbanded and let everybody do their own thing again. So uh, they're good things. And you know, some corporate stuff, uh, <laughs> I know we had one time company got in and promised they're gonna do all the scheduling from outside and then make everything more efficient. Well, they forgot the preparation time and peak times in the business. So that didn't work out either, you know. <laughs> Sometimes you wonder that people on the top would go for that. You know, but that's, that's those are exceptions to the rule and uh, it was changed and I think, yeah, you have to stick with corporate, but I always, it's just like I do in my restaurant. I always tell people, if, if you have a better mousetrap than I do, you let me know, we'll look at it, and if it's yours is better than mine, we'll go for it. You know, so I'm always open to suggestions and input. Uh, 
at the same token, you know, you got to be very strict on what we put on a plate, how it's prepared, because uh, to me, it's the most important thing. You know, you give one, one recipe to five people and it all comes out differently, believe it or not. You know, or even you're using a different pot. I did I do my lobster bisque and I used one product for a long time and I could not figure out my soup after I reheated it, thinned out. It did not stay thick. Scratched my head on it for about four weeks. And then I finally figured out, I couldn't figure out what it was, but then I figured out what it was and I changed the product to some somebody else's product. And that was the difference. They put too much, you know, like all those wonderful starches that are out there available. Thickeners. Mm-hmm. You know? And uh, I guess that just didn't come by. agree with the whole comment. I mean, I was getting to the point where we're going to set the sample out to test it, you know, have it tested and analyzed. But I was finally smart enough to figure out that let's try that first before we do anything. So there are always challenges out there. And, and uh, I think over the time, too, you work on recipes, you do it yourself, and then you find out that, you know what, we'll put something this in there or something this in there. Uh, it's made a better product. So it's not like you set in stone, this is what it is. Uh, what were some unique challenges that you weren't expecting when you transferred over to owning your own restaurant? Things that you weren't, uh, I guess, well-equipped to handle yet? Well, like I said earlier, I think they, 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 they most, the, the biggest challenge uh, biggest challenge was ordering foods for, the, for, for, for preparation. Dealing for, from the vendors, I had not done that before. I mean, you know, got it on paper and I was involved in some purchasing procedures, but I had not done it for myself. And I was really concerned about, you know, order the right amount, you know, order, make sure you get the specifications. I would say that was my biggest challenge. Uh, I, I was very lucky. I had one person from food company suppliers. She worked very close with me and she helped me a lot. And then, you know, once I got that off the ground, I was, uh, I could fly on my own. So how have you seen the field change in your years? Like, I guess in terms of, you could say food, have, have foods like people's taste really changed? Are they wanting to try new foods a lot more? Or um, would you say that fads are a bigger thing, like food fads or healthy, sustainable? You kind of mentioned it before. Yeah, uh, I think uh, it has changed. I think uh, depends where you are, probably more in larger towns. Mm-hmm. But I think there are fats out there, you know, uh, but uh, overall people are more knowledgeable about food. Uh, they're more, I should still say, more willing to try different things. I don't know if some people that are stuck on the same thing on the menu, but overall they're, they're more open, I think, uh, and looking for things on the menu, uh, but not just, I mean, looks are, you know, first thing you see, you see the plate in front, uh, that's the most one of the most important things, but then it better taste good. And I think that's where we have, or I feel, this generation of cooks, they don't have, I, I shouldn't generalize it, or some of them don't have the, it doesn't, it looks great, but it tastes on it there. Mm-hmm. And I shouldn't generalize on that. But uh, to me, what I found is that they just uh, don't spend enough time preparing the sauces, or whatever it might be. Or they come up with some names and stuff. You look at that menu and 
my God, all those things that are supposed to be on the plate, and then you get a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of that. <laughs> Not too many people survived for that. I, I would say I looked at Charlie Trotter, and I mean, he was a champion in his, and it was all small plates. But, you know, he had such a big, he had such a big restaurant. People wanted to work for him, and uh, well, you go to wash dishes for whatever. <laughs> go do that, because that's what it is. And uh, I think some of the larger restaurants are in a, in a good, like, Looking at Charleston way back when, you know, when Johnson Wales was big, of course, they, they moved to Charlotte. And I have no idea how or what they're doing in Charlotte. But in Charleston, I mean, is Charleston could not have done without uh, Johnson Wales, of course, then they opened in the culinary school and they moved to Charlotte. But I mean, there are a lot of students working in those restaurants that were making minimum wages. But at the same token, they learned a lot there and were exposed to more hands-on situations than there were in classrooms. So I was kind of curious if you could kind of enlighten us. I know obviously there's going to be some differences due to inflation, but if you could kind of give us an idea of what the pays were for a sous chef, executive chef, as a director. It's, you know, it all, they have, I haven't got national restaurant news for a long time. You know, they got their basically, uh, categories which really differ a lot from i mean i cannot pay my chef let's say in a large hotel the executive chef probably takes home 120 at least in uh, small hours are more regulated than uh, less hours i would say than in a big place uh, sous chef like i said all depends too on uh, the size of operation uh, of course, when it comes down to cooks too, it's, uh, I find that uh, you know also it also depends on the benefits. You know, some places that like old Edwards across, they have life insurance and they have medical, and some of the people are living in, so I cannot compare what I'm paying my staff to what they're paying. They have a lot more, a lot more benefits. I can't afford to, unfortunately, I can't afford to pay health insurance and all that stuff, then I would have to obviously up my my prices and then uh, the resistance from the yeah, customers say, how come you can you want that much money? Uh, you know, and then I realize what it takes and I don't know how this whole thing is going to work out. Whether, you know, in Europe, all the servers are on salary. There is some talk here that that might happen. I just don't <laughs> think, uh, yes, you know, they should maybe, maybe the minimum wage, but their main thing is it's their tips, and uh, we see it sometimes people from Europe come over there and come over here and uh, they don't tip because they're not used to, you know, because that's what they used to over there. I mean, I know when I go over there, I tip uh, what I do over here. And they're usually pretty happy. And, you know, tips really, uh, to me, I would not, you know, someone does have their 20, 17, 18, 20 or more percentage on there. But I think as a customer, you should know, and we have very few cents where they don't uh, they get good service they do. So the scale varies I think you know from small operations to large operations and uh, you know there's some chefs that might make 200,000. I don't know anybody but time change and I wouldn't be surprised if that's there but then that's more or less you know uh, also you know it's a, you don't see it that much anymore um, especially people, chefs that have been on shows <laughs> and got all those great prices. Uh, 
But at the same token, there were not the restaurants, and the restaurant suffered from that because they got out of all the PR and everything is wonderful. And if you're a restaurant owner and your chef is out uh, getting all those awards, but there's nobody in the kitchen that runs the place, uh, that's why you don't. I don't think you see that that much anymore. That's where things have changed in that aspect. Said so you, you want to do it? You better be here. You know, and it's, uh, as a chef, you got to take care of the business unless you're a PR chef. And, you know, some of the big places they have somebody who just do that, and hey, that's great. You know, where the chef goes down to the fish market or any market at five, five o'clock in the morning, uh, pick the fish. Uh, that's a nice PR thing, but it's not reality. All right, so I have a few more uh, final, just kind of curiosity questions, not necessarily about the career, sure. and then I'll wrap it up with one last question about the career. So you did say you went to Oktoberfest, Helen. That's how you kind of found uh, Highlands, North Carolina, That's correct? True. So yeah. I'm from Georgia. I've been to Helen. I haven't been to Oktoberfest in Helen, but I'm kind of curious, how does Oktoberfest in Helen compare to Oktoberfest in Germany? Uh, <laughs> it's <a little> comparison. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a small party. And, uh, you know, I mean, Munich, that's uh, it's a monster. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so, but in a small part, it's just like, you know, here in town, we did Oktoberfest and not this year, but, you know, you, I think it's the spirit uh, that counts and getting some, maybe featuring some of the, some of the dishes and then people venture out and eat something different possibly, mm-hmm. you know, um, so comparison wise, I think it's for, it serves its purpose, you know, it's uh, they're, they're busy, they're doing it, people love it, so that's all that counts. Would you consider the Oktoberfest in Germany to be more similar to like a, a national or a state fair in the U.S.? Yes, okay. yes. it's more, I would say, it's, it, it's really, it's a, it's a big production, it's like like a state fair, I mean, you got big tents and you got rides and and everything else, it's just, I guess, Oktoberfest is sort of a lot of beer, so <laughs> girls come out with that stuff, and uh Everybody's going oompa oompa on the tables and having a good time. So that's about the only difference to the state fairs that I can think of. All right. So you started cooking in Germany and then you cooked in Jamaica, but I'm sure you were cooking very touristy food, uh, like more uh, appreciable to the American palate there. I'm not really sure if it was more Islander food. Well, uh, our slogan is, um, is basically American food, with a kitchen influence and a German touch. That sort of uh, sums it up. And that's what you cook I mean, I love, currently at Wolfgang, uh, Wolfgang's, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, basically, you know, we, like I said, we serve a lot of steaks. Uh, I do a lot of, uh, I do like crawfish etouffee. Uh, I came up with a dish that sort of combines some Cajun because I use uh, veal, Scallopini uh, on the Cabernet sauce, topped with crawfish and hollandaise, and I sell a lot of. I came up with that dish. We sell a lot of horses Rockefeller. Like I said, occasionally I do the uh, Commander's Palace duck. Uh, I love uh, jerk food uh, spices. Uh, I get a lot of requests for blackening of fish, which is still seems to be in. I think it was for a while, everybody did black, you know, mm-hmm. but the problem there was they put so much seasoning on it 
it's it's you've got to use the seasoning in proportion, easy, not overdoing it. And I think that's uh, so. We get a lot of we sell a lot of. I mean, last night I saw uh, several blackened snap, uh, blackened uh, salmon, and even blackened trout, which doesn't happen too often. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do um, uh, Cajun barbecue shrimps. We sell a lot of that with grits. So we got a little bit. I think I got a nice rounded menu. A little bit. And what's uh what's your favorite regional cuisine? Do you like the German cuisine, the southeastern, Cajun? I would say probably if you ask me, it's I'm more tended to go with Cajun. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like the flavors. I like the spices, you know, and that's close to Caribbean food. Um, um, I like well seasoned, well seasoned in proportion. You know, not over, not over seasoned, but you know, it's. Uh, some people, when they get their food, they automatically go to salt and pepper, but that doesn't happen often anymore. So, is this too salty? Well, why did you put salt? <laughs> so, in America, there's a very popular chef named Wolfgang Puck. Have you ever met him? I met Wolfgang Puck in '87 uh, when we had the Food and Beverage Directors Conference in in uh, LA. Mm-hmm. We all went to Spago, and I met him there. As a matter of fact, I have a I still have a drawing from him. You know, that's what he does. I mean, at that time, he probably still does in some ways. Uh, all the food he serves, he has a drawing of it. I mean, I do that uh, mainly when I do special wine dinners or stuff for my for my people. Uh, but he was a pretty good drawing guy, so that looked very professional. But uh, yeah, he gave me one of those with, with the signature on it, and I've seen him now and then. But when uh, we bought a restaurant. We had to carry the name Hildegard's for two years. That was part of the deal. And um, my first name is Joachim, J-O-A-C-H-I-M, Spanish Joaquin. I said, my wife said I can't pronounce it. <laughs> and middle name is Wolfgang. So we just called it Wolfgang's. Uh, and at that time, Wolfgang Park was nowhere on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that was 20 years ago. So uh, occasionally we have somebody coming in and, Say some shepherd is Wolfgang here tonight, and they say yes, he is. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> so we have a. Sometimes somebody comes in and, and, and assumes that, but you know, on the menu and everything, description we have and our wine list, we got our whole, uh, basically spiel on how we started, where we're coming from, how that is in there. So we're not pretending to be uh, Wolfgang Puck, and uh, I'll set people straight. You know, they come in. Oh, I got all the cookware at home. I said, nope, that's not me. <laughs> I was just curious because you are definitely in the same industry. I think he's a little older, though, right? Yeah, I think we're about the same age. Okay. Final question that's more related to career wise. If someone was going into the career, let's say they're a teenager at home, they like to cook and they think they want to get into the industry. You've mentioned before you think the best thing they can do is actually get in a kitchen, see if they like that pace and everything like that. But if they were, uh, practicing at home or whatnot, what, what do you think are the most important skills for them to practice, I guess, to start with? I think you've got to uh, relate in uh, creativity. I think it's, it's, it's very important. But like I said before, um, whatever you do, if you have a chance to work in the kitchen, just be around, try to help out. You know, I mean, when I started an apprenticeship, what we got in front of us was a bag of carrots to do, mm-hmm. bag of onions you know, I mean, that was, that's what we started with. I mean, and that was a big kitchen. We got 40 people in the kitchen. 
we had our own butcher shop and, and a seafood place. And I mean, it was, it was a monster, but, uh, but that's what we started with. And um, things have changed. But you should be surprised right now, people coming out of cooking school, they don't know how to dice the onion. Hey, it's, it's, it's a fact. You know, and it's, um, there'd be enough people how to tell number one, you need a sharp knife, and number two, I'm sure you have. But um, you gotta know, you gotta get you to know your basic skills, and that's what I ask you. When people interview me, it's, I ask them what are the basic sauces, and you take a primer of how many ribs does it have, and how long does it take to cook? And do you know how to make mayonnaise? And you'd be surprised how many people don't know how to make mayonnaise. You know, oh, I buy it, I buy it. Well, yeah, you can buy it. <laughs> But, you know, it's an emulsion sauce. It's basically eggs and oil, just like hollandaise, it's eggs and butter. Mm-hmm. You know, there are also different ways of, of, of doing, you know, hollandaise. Uh, of course, uh, right now with the health department, you have probably that much of a holding time, and you got to be very careful, and you have to use pasteurized eggs. So things have changed a little bit, but I never forget uh, way back when, when I, when Paul Bordeaux came in, uh, to the restaurant in Dallas. Uh, at that time, he was he was opening his own place in New Orleans, but he was still working for the family. And uh, he said uh, he used hot butter for the holidays. And normally, you use hot butter. The way I grew up, it breaks, it breaks the eggs. It's too hot for the eggs. Mm-hmm. And I told him, I don't think that works. I told Paul, with him, I don't think that works. Well, I was taught a lesson that it does work because. Volume, what they're doing, and you're doing it in the blender, it works. So I was convinced. Of that. Those are all little episodes that you you go through life and you look back and you know. I told Paul Cordome that his own days is not going to work. <laughs> That's what I felt at that time, you know. But uh, I think the most important thing, if anybody wants to go into business, you got to be able to number one, your social life. Forget about it; it's not going to be there. So it, there is a big commitment in that aspect. It's like when you're supposed to be out at five o'clock, you're not going to be out at five o'clock. You might be out at six o'clock. It changes your whole, you have to have that commitment. Your whole life changes a lot. And if you want to go somewhere in this business, that's what it takes. You know, and uh, if a girlfriend doesn't agree with the hours, well, you're going to find another girlfriend or change business. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a big commitment. And it's uh, unless you're in it 100%, it's like to say, if you can't stand the heat in the kitchen, get out. There, obviously, I think there are a lot of chefs around here, a lot of chefs in this country or anywhere in the world that have done great things, and uh, and, and uh, they're satisfied and they're happy. And I think you got to get satisfaction out of what, whatever job you're doing. But you know, especially especially in this business, um, where basically, I mean, looking at the rent my restaurant, I mean, no day is the same. That's what's so exciting about it. Yes, the basics are the same, but just there's so many things uh, that come up and that you have to handle. Uh, I could tell you stories, but it's going to be too long. Um, but like I said, it's it's exciting, and uh, I get greater satisfaction out of it. And, uh, if I would, somebody would come by the restaurant and want to buy it right now, I don't know what I would do. I'd probably take three months on the beach, and then I would get less. <laughs> But if you get a chance, try and preferably, I mean, like the Green Buyer and you know, some of the larger hotels, they have training programs, even in a smaller kitchen. Try to spend some time in the kitchen if you can, ask the chef. If you can watch or be around and just get a feel of it, 
if this is something that you want to do the rest of your life. And then you're going to make that decision. And, and then, of course, you have to make a decision whether, you know, what part of the kitchen you prefer. Uh, I'm looking back. I was once offered a, you know, just be a butcher, work in the butcher shop, but there were not enough opportunities uh, to travel. You know, because butcher shops are very, you know, just like pastry chefs. Because now that has changed a lot. But so I was looking with the, in the kitchen, I think it has fair, uh, fair pretty well with it. I'm, I'm happy. And like I said, I'm, I wouldn't change it for the world. I appreciate you coming on for the for the podcast and enlightening some of the younger viewers and seeing if they really want to get into this industry or not. <laughs> I think uh, I think it's admirable. You know, I always, I always try to paint a bleaker picture. <laughs> uh, I try to scare away from it if they survive that one. Then. And uh, I'll throw in some free advertisement. When I went there, I loved the food. Uh, if you are in that area, I would suggest you go by there. Even if you're going to the Biltmore, that's a little bit of a drive. I think an hour, hour and a half. But yeah, hour and a half. if you're, it's not more take an hour and a half at least. Yeah, I was gonna say if you're in the Biltmore for say a week or a weekend or something like that, you know, you could spend a day in the Highlands and then finish off with a dinner there, and I think it'd be worth it. It'd be nice. So. I really enjoyed the food there. I really enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you for giving me the opportunity, and, and hopefully uh, we have some people, that, young kids, that will listen to it and, uh, and ask some more questions and, and, and make this their career because we do need we do need young people. We need a new generation in this, in this business. Great talking to you. Great talking to you, too. All right. Stay in touch. Keep us posted. And next time you're here. All right. And I'll probably post some pictures on Facebook when I drop the episode, if that's okay. I have a picture of you and my wife and me. Okay. Well, wonderful. <laughs>